this time, I'm going to ask that you fasten your seatbelts. You are listening to the Maybe Running Will Help podcast. We hope you'll take us on a run as you listen in to the conversation with our guests. We'll be checking in periodically to let you know how long the episode and you have been running and to share a few encouraging words to keep you listening and moving. All our episodes are made to educate, entertain, and inspire you with experienced guests, sound effects, and deep thoughts about running and life. Okay, now if you're ready to put down some miles, lace up and let's go. The clock starts now. Thank you and enjoy your flight. My week has been great after two years of COVID. We've been training and racing for a while, but we had our, you know, our all of our communities together racing. I don't know. I think we're in 80 something a year of mainstream races, out of which one of them is our race that we own and all proceeds go to us. So that happened this past weekend and it was phenomenal. So I'm coming off of that high of being able to do that after being away for so long. Today, I'm sharing with you a conversation I had with an incredible human and someone I'm privileged to call a friend, David Slimkowski. He's the founder and executive director of Athletes Serving Athletes, an organization dedicated to serving and empowering athletes with limited mobility. You said you have 70 athletes right now. Is that uh, is that a lot for you guys or is that pretty um, typical? And, and I know, know the pandemic affected it, but... Yeah, so pre- it's a million dollar question. It's a great question. So we were at one time up to 130 individual athletes living with disabilities in our program. And then our Salisbury group became their own organization and they had 20 plus individual athletes and they became team 360 wonderful group. Um, and then unfortunately through, uh, you know, the pandemic crushed us and actually, you know, some of our athletes with disabilities, they're living with some pretty challenging health situations and i gotta be honest with you we lose them like there's some deaths throughout the years and uh the exciting thing for me is looking forward we just started two new communities this year coming out of a uh, pandemic one of them is montgomery county and one of them is newcastle delaware and although the pandemic was very challenging in a lot of ways it was also very beneficial in a lot of ways for our organization because we go hard. Like, I mean, you're talking 80 races a year. We train more than we race. We, we have all our communities combined over 200. We call them group runs. Um, so just taking that and completely putting on standstill, we completely revamped our organization from an administrative standpoint. And I used to say, you know, I, I had no playbook 15 years ago and then we built it over the years. And before the pandemic, we, I had three quarters of a playbook. We have the playbook. It can always be improved, but we know what we do, how we do it, where we do it, why we do it better than anybody in the world. So 
as our resources permit, we're actually, we have a job posting right now for a, we're calling it a recruitment coordinator. And that's a person just to get people on the bus. It's the easiest sell in America to get people to do what we do. But, you know, we have a dashboard and we look at our communities. Well, this community needs more athletes. This community's got a waiting list. So we need more volunteer runners. Um, and then it's like, even within two hours of our headquarters in Cockeysville, you know, look at Montgomery County. Are you kidding me? It's a wonderful county. PG County. I grew up in PG County. Let's go. And then not to mention, you know, getting around the D.C., Northern Virginia Beltway. It's a uh, blue ocean opportunity. That's what's kind of given me second wind. Now, what kinds of at when you're talking about athletes, can you tell, um, you know, the listeners like what kind of disabilities do your athletes have? That is a another wonderful question and something that it's interesting you know i was inspired by rick and dick hoyt the father and son out of boston who you know rick was born a spastic paraplegic his father pushed him in a chair rick had very limited mobility it took close to 10 years to of tweaking our mission statement and and to 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 get it down to exactly what they do and it came with a lot of probably mostly emotional hardship. A couple of years ago, we made a hard, we went through a strategic planning process. It's a long, boring story, but the two decisions that came out of it that were really made a lot of sense, but were really hard to implement were, we're not going to do multi-sport anymore. We were doing triathlons, duathlons. I loved it more than anybody. Um, it was really hard to scale to do it well. It's hard for you and I to train for a triathlon with all the logistics and equipment and transportation and training times. Now you're with, you know, a, a duo team with someone else and it just got to be insanely hard and we weren't doing it really well throughout our 10 communities. So just stick to running. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, the argument is we're just together. We're doing something life-giving and in order to help more people, we need to do less. So if we, you know, by, just running only i could spend an hour talking about logistically how we can scale that to our communities and have a more robust program the biggest heart it, the probably the bigger and the harder decision was who we serve for about 10 years it was it does not matter what your ability is here let, let's go we'll figure it out uh -huh. so now all of a sudden we have 10 communities and we have different types of equipment very expensive and again, I could go for an hour telling you how it was the volunteer engagement was really hard. Like, you know, some people showed up expecting to run um, and then we may have them paired with an athlete with behavioral issues who's not really running. And and it hurt really hard to say, hey, we're only going to. So the athletes we focus on and we serve right now are the common theme is limited mobility. They're going to need a wheelchair to get around. It's probably not going to be an individual that has use of their arms or legs that could do a push rim or a hand crank. That's not our focus right now. Um, it's someone that would need to be in a jogger and mm -hmm. paired up with an able-bodied runner from the community. We grandfathered everyone in. If you were in our program up to that point, we still support them. And, you know, we have a, a sprinkling of, of athletes with, with some mobility, but um, it was really hard. Yeah. But I have to tell you, you know, by doing that, it's enabled us to help more people. So mm -hmm. that's the rub. It's we're saying no to some to say yes to a lot more that we can do well. Like we're a teeny nonprofit that started with zero. 
and it's just you know it's a miracle in ways that we're here still talking um but it was just got to be too much um the other thing i want to ask you about the the people that you serve like it's all ages right or, or is what's the age uh, yeah so we there, there's no um you know we I, I think we said it's like seven years old just to get past the um you know the really 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 you know small toddlers um but to be honest with you it's it's more of the mo the mobility restrictions that is a common cause there's no age you know, like our athletes don't limit out uh, you know that it's funny too now we're getting older right so yeah. some of the uh our athletes i met 15 16 years ago they're young adults right now you know and um, I hope they're racing when they're 70 years old. It makes me feel good thinking about their, uh, you know, their medals and their trophy cases. Yeah. You know, I have some hanging around and like theirs are like, you know, more than I'll ever have. Hopefully by the time their career is uh, winding down. And Yeah. So they're, so 15 or 16 years is how long you guys have been doing we, this? This December will be 15 years a day we incorporated it. Probably a year and a half before that it was this, crazy idea and uh running around telling everybody what a great idea it is and trying to find someone that was doing it and why is anybody doing it and, well we should do it oh i'm supposed to do it um, are you crazy uh, <laughs> not me so so let's talk about that because i know we kind of like jumped right in um i mean i get really excited about you guys i i mean i've seen it from all angles i've seen it being someone watching you guys like during a race and and i've you know been behind and, and pushing before and it's all like i love what you guys do and um so i get excited about it and i could ask you and and i will ask you like a bunch of more questions but i do want to go back and make sure that we get to the background and like a little bit about your story um because i i think it's an interesting one i think that just how this all came about is something that um, our community will relate to and appreciate um, because you were in the sports, you were an athlete. Yeah, I was, I had a very blessed. I grew up in PG County, uh, had uh, parents are wonderful. I played, you know, physically I was born with a, a body that could run around and enjoy it. And, you know, I don't come from a disability background. I, I really had very limited uh, exposure to anyone living with a any type of significant disability growing up, even into my young adulthood. I just, sports has always been a positive anchor in my life. You know, little kid playing little league baseball and football. And, you know, I, my mom was probably sending the police out every night at 10 o'clock trying to get me inside. And it's just the way that I was. And um, as I got older and into high school, um, I went to a, a phenomenal high school and, and wrestled, started playing this crazy lacrosse sport because I was little and still am, you know, my freshman year of high school, I was 4'11", 98 pounds at DeMatha Catholic High School. They're spitting out professional athletes. So the writing on the wall pretty soon was like, you're not going to play baseball. You're not definitely not going to play football. I think I made JV one year and it was like, just, we'd get destroyed. Um, <laughs> So they, this new crazy sport, at least at the time in DC was starting and they weren't making any cuts. So I signed up and, and then into college, um, I was fortunate enough to play lacrosse and at a division three levels, uh, started Salisbury and transferred to the evil empire at the time, Washington college and had a great, wonderful career. And 
loved it and then played lacrosse post-collegiately for a while in the, you know old men's league and and then i got started to get older and you know got in the working world and you know I, life got really hard for me mainly through some poor decisions i suffer from i didn't know it at the time but i was you know living with untreated the disease of uh, alcoholism and finally my life just got to be really hard and um you know i was going i had two beautiful kids I was going through a divorce and didn't like the person in the mirror so by the grace of god and uh a fellowship and some finally uh you know was given this gift of desperation wanted to make changes so through this fellowship i you know was able to one day at a time get on top of the compulsion to drink and um my life started to improve and then the aha moment for me was wow i can take these same principles and apply them to other areas of my life wow you know explosion my career my relationships my hobbies whoa and at the time i was trying to get back in shape because like i told you like i was always very competitive and when i was competitive whatever sport i was playing i always felt most alive and i was lost like like i i didn't have that in my life and now i'm 35 like what you know what's going on so i you know when i you know i started to get some sobriety under my wings and i said i'm gonna run the baltimore marathon this year never a competitive runner i always run just to play other sports and but i know the linear arc of or the the linear progression of that, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'm going to have to train. I'm going to have, it's going to make me feel better. I'm going to run this marathon. And in the course of that, uh, my friend got me to do a triathlon. I swim like a wrestler. I can ride a bike, whatever. Like swim didn't scare me. I just, it was terrible, but I loved it. And then I saw this, uh, it was a Saturday. I was laying on my couch and I saw this story of Rick and Decoy come on the news. And if you don't know him, if you're a runner, you probably have heard of him. Unfortunately, the father passed away, gosh, about a year and a half ago, but they had an unbelievable journey and, you know, they've won SBs. They inspired people across the world for 40 years. And I'm sitting here crying on my couch going, why they must feel amazing. Their life must be just insanely great. Uh, why, what is it? Why are they, you know, and then the, I would just, it, something exploded in my heart. I was like, I was meant to do that. Like I can do that. Like I have to do that. I have to, like, it, it's just, I was made to do that. Like literally, I think I could be really good at that. I just don't know anybody with a disability. And that's where that original seed was planted. And it, after about a year and a half, I finally did a race with, I approached the William S. Bear School through a gentleman I met who served on their partnership board. It's a city school, but they have a nonprofit partnership board set up to assist them. It's a wonderful <laughs> oasis of love. And uh, down on, uh, off of North Avenue, on, uh, right across from Coppin State and showed him the video of Rick and Dick Hoyt and was really ignorant and naive. I said, you know, ask if any of their students would want to be interested in doing a race. And I think originally they thought I was just going to run a marathon and raise some money for him. Uh -huh. So I think they were like, wow, you're going to actually involve our students. That's what you're talking about. And the, the exact answer was, David, we have 200 students. When do you want to start? If you are running, you have been at it for about 15 minutes. Great work.
keep going. Now, we're going to do our breaks a little differently today. Instead of running with you, I'm going to be pausing to share information about Dave's inspiration, Team Hoyt, the father-son duo who competed together in various athletic endeavors. Many of you may be familiar with Rick and Dick Hoyt, but let's learn a little more about their story over the next hour or so. To begin, Rick Hoyt was diagnosed with cerebral palsy at birth after his umbilical cord became twisted around his neck. That caused blockage of oxygen flow, and as a result, his brain could not properly control his muscles. Many doctors encouraged the Hoyts to institutionalize Rick, informing them that he would be nothing more than a vegetable. But his parents held on to the fact that Rick's eyes would follow them around the room, and that gave them hope that he would somehow be able to communicate someday. The Hoyts took Rick every week to Children's Hospital in Boston, where they met a doctor who encouraged them to treat Rick like any other child. Rick's mother, Judy, spent hours each day teaching Rick the alphabet with sandpaper letters and posting signs on every object in the house. In a short amount of time, Rick learned the alphabet. And at the age of 11, after some persistence from his parents, Rick was fitted with a computer that enabled him to communicate. It became clear that Rick was intelligent. With this communication device, Rick was also able to attend public schools for the first time. Incredibly, Rick went on to graduate from Boston University in 1993 with a degree in special education. He later worked at Boston College in a computer lab helping to develop systems to aid in communication and other tasks for people with disabilities. Incredible. Now, we're going to get back to the interview, but we'll learn more about Rick and Dick Hoyt on the next break. And I left that meeting like I've never been that higher. I was like, oh, my gosh, you're going to do this. Holy cow. So it was funny. I went uh, literally. It was like, wow, I played lacrosse at DeMatha. We like it was the first year. It wasn't the first year we had a team, but we were like bare bones, like just getting the program going. And I was would think of that. Of So we sent out flyers to the families. And a couple months later, we had our first meeting. And and then like they got out of school for the summer. So like I, I'm like. I can't sleep. I'm researching, trying to find organizations that did this. And there wasn't any, like literally none. The Rick and Dick were wonderful father racing with his kid. They were very receptive and helped any way they could. There was like one little, they called it Team Hoyt, Virginia Beach. This guy, Trey White, started a special needs daughter. He built a really cool community in Virginia Beach. And that was it. I mean, I found some people running with their kids around. So I paced the up and down uh, for the summer and then bought a racing chair and then showed up in September at the Bear School. And this was in 2000, oh my gosh, six or seven. I can't remember now. And started working with like six kids in the hallway. I'll never forget the first day they brought out like five of their students and they're like, okay, when you're done, Johnny goes down to lunch. James will go, yeah. you know, to his class terrence is gonna you know go over here i'm like what Wait, where are you going <laughs> like, I don't and but we just start walking around the halls and then me and Wait, james so who was it it was you and you had other people with you me, or just you me scared out of my wits like you talk about being out of your element and uh so you had one jogger one and jogger went, and you like five kids at at their school so there's you know they had teachers all around and they weren't you know letting me run around this crazy guy who never knows any, you know, didn't know anybody. So at that um, point though, what, what was your vision? Like, was your vision this, this huge organization or were you just trying to be like, Oh, you, you knew the Hoyt organization and you were like, 
that's amazing. Like, and you personally wanted to like, you thought it was just going to be like something you would personally do. It's a great that. question. I don't know. I think the original aha moment for me was I, I was born to do this. I'm going to do it. And then it was a process of, well, I can't find anybody that was doing it as an organization to outreach. Yeah. If, if there was, I would have kicked their door in. Like I'd be, you know, number one volunteer and would have tried to work my way into a job and somehow. Uh -huh. So it was just gotcha. a, a coincidence. You know, I was the guy at the right place at the right time. And, and after a while, I was like, wow, there's no one doing this. And then at the same time, knowing how much I needed it in my life and then just going, you know, making the next logical conclusion of we need this in our community. Uh -huh. Like I can't be the only one. And then you see the Hoyts and seeing their story. And it's just like, you can't help not but cry with tears of just hope and love. And like, what, what is it at the core? Like, I, I need a piece of that. How do we bottle that? We're going to bottle Rick and Dick Hoyt and we're going to do it in the streets of Baltimore. Did so you ever they, get an opportunity to talk to them? Or Yeah, we did. Um, they, they have, and they actually still have, they call it Hoytapalooza. So they run a, they're from Massachusetts, Western Mass, and they have, it's really cute to tell they live in, there's a little elementary school. They have a 5k every year. They call it Hoytapalooza. So one year we road tripped up there with, there was like 30 of us and we had like 10 teams and, uh, and it was great. And, and we got to meet them. And I mean, they as you can imagine, there's such a, um, they're just like the icons of what I've learned to call duo racing or assisted athlete racing, which is exactly what we do. Yeah. Um, then, Were you able, able to share with them like the impact they had on you? You know, I, I have. I've, I, you know, personally, I've written like I started stalking them. Like, hopefully, <laughs> not in an unhealthy way, but I mean, I'm writing heartfelt letters of how they mm -hmm. inspired me and changed my life, and certainly have done that. And um got to meet him personally a couple times and actually rick we uh james and i had the uh opportunity to compete in some uh triathlons against them with them whatever you want to call it of course we're competitive we want to beat knocked our socks off but they're uh the father stopped racing for a while and then uh rick started racing with this gentleman brian lyons who was really cute story and actually a sad story he um brian was a great guy dentist and Rick picked him. He said, dad, if you're not going to do triathlons more, I want to, I want to race with Brian because Brian just had a great relationship with him. And, um, and then Brian actually passed away unexpectedly. He was a big runner up in the Boston area and triathlete very well beloved and, um, was an easy road for them. So wow. it was fun. We got to, yeah. they came down to Eagle man one year mm -hmm. and, and we competed with them and got to go out to have dinner with them afterwards. And yeah. Now you said, do you have somebody that you regularly run with? You talk, you're talking about Jet Jay. Who did you uh, mention? So, so the one of the first athletes I had the pleasure of racing with at, at the Bears School was uh, James Banks. So mm -hmm. in the early years, it was James and I, and then Terrence uh, Ridley. He he was an early athlete, um, and then we started meeting more families. And this is where kind of the idea was: why we. we there's probably a, a need for this organization to develop what, well, you know, this is going to be more than just a volunteer gig. Wow. That would be amazing. Do what I love to do as a career, you know, mind blowing. Right. With that, you know, applying these principles that I learned. Um, so, but as the years started going by um, and we started growing with more athletes, um, you know, I can't, 
James and I developed a very close relationship early on because it was just him and I for years. And in the early days of ASA, there wasn't a lot of else going on. So uh, I still talk to him today and uh, he, he'll always have a special place in my heart uh, with some of the, you know, all our, the athletes do, but I, there's always so much of me to go around. That's one of my struggles is not being able to spend time as much as I would with the individuals. But the beauty is through our connections, they're getting it with other people. So yeah. I find solace in that, as you know, like the, the running's the hook, right? Like, and it's awesome in and of itself. The races are great, but to us, the bigger vision, the bigger uh, prize is that connection to healthy people in the community. It's just, there are athletes living with disabilities. Life can be very isolating. It can be isolating for me. You know, I, mm -hmm. I have a, that's, physical well some of my disabilities are hidden you don't you might not know it if you don't know me but uh just that constant meeting people outside of my comfort zone and you know my demons in my head want me to you know sit in a room and hide in a closet sometimes yeah yeah uh, but this has a very unique and powerful way of just kicking indoors and getting people out and active and, and meeting other people that are positive what do you think it is that the running community gets out of this um you know like you did i imagine you, i mean you probably don't have trouble getting volunteers you might have trouble like because life is so busy with people sticking around but i mean i think a lot of people would be interested in helping yeah we need you if you're interested please like we we have athletes on waiting lists right now and it's i think that's the easy sell and of course we're coming out of a pandemic right so um you know, I know this because I live it and I know it because I see other people live it. And I think the draw for me is, you know, I'm getting older now. And I, there, there's a saying on my wall, the measure of a man is not in how much he achieves. It is in how much he knows the love of the father and out of that loves others. And there's, we're all different and we're all, you know, life goes in different places. So for me, it's always been, and you know, I'm not 25 year old in the prime of my life where, um, you know, it was fun to go and see, you know, where I could take my personal athletic accomplishments, but it was always selfish to be quite honest with you or not always, but a lot of it was selfish. Like I felt, always felt like my personal accomplishments made me a man. Right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's really not the case. And, um, so when we race with our teams, like if I go to my, and it, Running's healthy, period. The end, no matter what your reasoning behind it. But if I go to a race by myself, I'm middle of the pack somewhere. I go to a race with an ASA athlete. Now I'm a rock star, right? I'm yeah. at the front sometimes of the Baltimore Marathon in front of 20,000 lunatics getting ready to go and feeling <laughs> that excitement. Or I just, there's something special about me now. It's because of my association with these individuals. And, um, and the, you know, I think the other thing too is it's hard it's hard to run, right? It's hard to get up some days and when you'll feel like it and your joints are hurting. And yeah, I'll be honest with you. Some of our athletes with disabilities, it's hard. There's some of them cognitively, they're very fun to be around and joyful and, and some of them not so much. So the challenge for me, I, you know, the first time I went to the bear school, I was scared out of my tree and it, um, but like you've, so for, for me, I think that's one of the reasons it makes it special. And even like, 
you know, when you're around people that aren't like you, no matter what it is, whether mm -hmm. it's race, religion, disability, ability, the more you're around people, the more accepting you are, the more comfortable you become. And then it just transcends into every other area of your life. We are almost at 30 minutes. So we are going to break here and give some more information about Rick and Dick Hoyt. If you give me a second to pull up my notes. Um, and just so you know, the information that I'm getting is from Wikipedia. I will put a reference in the show notes um, so that you can reference this story. And it has all kinds of other links. But um, back to the history of the team. Um, team Hoyt actually began in 1977 when Rick asked his father if they could run in a race together to benefit a lacrosse player at his school who had become paralyzed. He wanted to prove that life went on no matter your disability. And Dick Hoyt was not a runner at the time. He was 36 years old. And after their first race, Rick said, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not handicapped. Wow. Now, after their initial five-mile run, Dick began running every day with a bag of cement in the wheelchair because Rick was at school and studying and unable to train with him. And Dick was able to improve his fitness so much that even with pushing his son, he was able to obtain a personal record of a 5K run in 17 minutes. Holy cow. That is vast. All right, let's get back to the interview and, and we will learn more about Rick and Dick Hoyt on the next break. You know, we're a volunteer driven organization. We have a really small staff. There's four of us now, four and a half, oh, hopefully wow. five and a half in a, a month or two. But we have like before the pandemic, we had every year we'd have about 700 volunteers touch us in some way through our wingman, our board, our area coordinators, um, our event volunteers. We do a lot of water steps for other big races. Um, and we've tried to really define that volunteer engagement. So it's not only achievable, but sustainable, but at the same time means something. And, uh, I think, you know, we're as close as that sweet spot as we've ever been. And we get it, man. People like there's, we want people to be able to do ASA ongoing if they want to, but certainly like people are coming in and out, like takes funny turns. Sometimes I have five kids. Like I, you don't have to explain <laughs> to me how challenging yeah. life can be. And uh, right. um, in any case. Yeah. But so, uh, and speaking again, like about the volunteers, can you talk a little bit about well, this is kind of a couple parts to this question, what the requirements are, what's expected of the volunteers. And then is there any kind of training or anything that they need because they are working with, you know, like you said, the people have different communication skills. And so is there any training that you guys do or that someone would need in order to get involved? Not really. Okay. So the biggest misconceptions are I'm not fast enough. I'm not strong enough. Probably not true. So we, our teams run at the pace of the slowest runner. The only thing we ask, we don't care about pace. We care about your heart. We, we ask that you can run a 5k without stopping. It doesn't need to be fast for those. We actually, this year, we just implemented a wingman in training. So person that maybe isn't up to that slow jog to a 3.1 miles, you come to our training. We'll give you encouragement. 
Um, we'll give you the inspiration certainly to show up and, you know, we'll give you the mileage progression chart and we have, it's really cool. We have, uh, I think it was seven people signed up for it this year and half of them are already running with our teams. So as far as being, we're not medics, like our family's sign of support, like we're, we're not in any way taking on any type of liability around being any type of, so you don't need anything there. Um, as far as any requirements, it's when we're out on the course, something happens, it's dial 911. I mean, we're not expected to have any type of medical background um, or certifications. Every one of our teams has what we call a team captain. So our wingmen, men and women, fast, slow, young and old, um, every team has a captain. That captain's job is to keep everyone safe, to make everyone have a good time not just the athlete with the living with disability, but also the other wingmen. Because as you know, what happens is it's pace is crazy. Like even like if you're close to someone's pace, it's still people have a tend to run faster than the slowest person. So that captain's job is to make it pull back on it. You know, it's usually with the boys, boys are dumb and they look tend to go a little bit harder. Um, and, and really, I tell you, that took us about eight years to claim because up until then, you know, we want people to have fun and it's impossible to put people with their existing pace groups in the worst calls. I've uh, maybe not the worst, but some of the worst calls I take is when I hear there's a race and we have a wingman come in and they get dropped two miles into the Baltimore 10 mile or, or that's terrible. It's not what we're about. We, together we finish is our motto. And oh, yeah, yeah. You know, like yourself, like we have most of our runners are, you know, they're getting a little on and, you know, 35 plus. They're not out there to, you know, win world championships. We do have some runners that are top of their age group, but they know when they come to an ASA event, it's not about the it's speed. About it's that. just about the community and being together and uh, being inspired, inspiring others to get a run in and go back and feel good about things. And what about what about the athletes? How do like what do you hear from their families and their parents like after the race and stuff like that and, and during the race like are they like what are what are some of the things that they're getting out of this yeah um gosh i'll try to not cry when i answer this question because there's like so many answers like i don't know how they feel i can only project what they feel and i think i think of one family or or there's one answer that always comes to mind when I'm asked this question. And it's that the beauty of us is that it's just always loving. Like whenever they come to anything and, and are around our community, it's just uplifting. Like everyone's positive. And in addition to that, it, it's interesting because we change our wording based on the answer I'm about to tell you. It's that we used to say we want everyone to feel loved, significant, and accepted. And we change that accepted to that you truly belong, right? So mm. when you say accepted, that means ah, we'll accept you, but you know maybe you're you're still different. But for a parent, they you know the, one of them told me like I feel like my kid belongs here, and that's wow. just so beautiful. Like that I have five beautiful. children, as I mentioned, like that have a kid not feeling that way. I would jump in front of a bus to change that. So I think at the core, that's probably the biggest benefit that they get like their kids living life to the fullest and being loved by a community of people and and they're out in the community and they're being celebrated in a way that unfortunately doesn't always come easy as it should 
so as far as like being comfortable around people with disabilities you don't have to be i think as far as the flip side of that coin so you have our athletes with disability and then quote unquote you know our volunteer able-bodied runners from the community my argument from day one's always been that they get more out of it than the athletes with disabilities and their families get out of it the beauty is it's a giving relationship but you know i'm a consumer probably the biggest consumer of what we do and you know i get the gift of you know new relationships inspiration a perspective research pre uh, perspective reset every time i go out you know i'm human i go home i got every blessing in the world but i'll have i have a tendency to find a problem and be grumpy about something stupid but when i leave a training or a race i'm just flying i go home and thank my lucky stars and it has a tendency to put think put my life into perspective continuously and if without that continuous <laughs> uh reminder right I yeah mean, I, wonder, I, mean, yeah. I wonder So, you know, you talked a little bit about your past and how kind of you went through some difficult times. And when you were talking about the three things with ASA being loved, significant and belonging, do you feel like that connects to things that you were missing when you were having a hard time? No question. Uh, I mean, you know, at, at the, the truth for me in the, at the core is, you know, like I was saying, you know, I, one of my challenges is, you know, just having an addictive personality and behavior, and it could be a great asset. It could also be a terrible <laughs> liability. It's like the force. You got to learn how to use it. Right. And uh, it took me a long time to, to, to learn how to use it, but thankfully I understand that now. Um, so I think for me, it's, you know, when, you know, everything was very selfish in my prior life leading up until the point where I was decided to make changes. So like I was saying, being part of a fellowship and learning about the disease and the recovery from the disease, you know, I started hearing about this uh, higher power and, you know, I always believed in that. I mean, athletes serving athletes, not a faith-based organization, but it's my personal faith journey of recognizing that there is something bigger than me out there. And like, Oh, wow. I should be an <laughs> instrument of service. And by doing that, it'll make my life better. And I knew that from a young age. I was, like I said, blessed to have good parents. I went to church. I went to a Catholic high school. And we were taught that, how to be gentlemen and scholars and, and uh, a men built for others. And I, I just, I, I got lost along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, but coming back to that truth for me, it's to help others. And in yeah. helping others, um, then my life is being improved. So... I mean, you currently are involved, like you still run with the athletes yourself, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do. I don't, um, as much as I can, right. <laughs> That's my, what I love to do. I mean, I, and it's racing season now. I have two races this weekend. Tomorrow I'll be in Annapolis and, um, and then Sunday I'll be out at Frederick and, and it's a gauntlet now, which is, I couldn't, uh, be any happier about so we yeah. go pretty hard in spring and then summer as you know it dies off a little bit people are on vacations and it's hot and 
and then late August we kick back in until really December. Um, but I every minute I can. Um, where I'm not personally, you know, my running is more about uh, survival and staying healthy. And uh, you know, I want to be running when I'm 75 years old. So as much as my pride, you know, what's the always, like I said, I'm addictive of personality. So right. little's good. A ton more has got to be better. And I'm hopefully getting old enough to know that, um, you know, for me right now in my life, you know, to be a good dad and a good husband and a good executive director and all the areas of my life, you know, I've chosen not to, you know, do the insane, you know, marathons, Ironman that I used to. And I love it. I, I've told you before, it, it's hard for me, but I think it's the more mature, responsible decision. So for me, it's like, I love half marathons. You know, I try to run three times a week. Um, and I, it's usually no problem there. And then I also, you know, I try to do some, a little bit of CrossFit and, you know, other workouts as well, just because my bones aren't as uh, nimble as they used to be. <laughs> All right. If you're running, you are 40 minutes in, you're doing awesome. Keep going. Now let's get back to the story, the team history of the Hoyt, Team Hoyt. Through March, 2016, the Hoyts competed in 1,130 endurance events, including 72 marathons and six Ironman triathlons. They had run the Boston Marathon 32 times, and they ran across the U.S. in 1992, completing a full 3,735 miles in 45 days. Wow. Um, on... Oh, they ran the 2013 Boston Marathon and had about a mile to go when the bombs exploded near the finish line. They were stopped by officials, along with thousands of runners still running the race. Thankfully, they were not injured, and a bystander with an SUV gave them a ride to the Sheraton Hotel. On April 21st, 2014, Dick and Rick Hoyt completed the 2014 Boston Marathon having previously announced that it would be their last together. And from 2015 to 2019, Rick Hoyt was pushed in the Boston Marathon by Brian Lyons, a dentist from Massachusetts. Lyons died in June 2020 at age 50, and Dick Hoyt died in his sleep at his home on March 17th, 2021. He was 80 years old. Um, so that is the story. That is their history. And there are some other facts that I will, um, get to at the end of the show. So let's get back to Dave and the interview and learn more about athletes serving athletes. I knew this the day we saw it in corporation papers, it's, it wasn't Dave incorporated, right? So certainly being a founding board member and, you know, the resident agent who had this crazy idea and then suckered, you know, four other people to sign the paperwork with me that it was about the organization. It was funny too, because, you know, when I was at that crossroads of going like, what am I, uh, me? I'm supposed, this is what I'm supposed to, yeah, this is what you're supposed to do. And uh, so wait a minute, I'm supposed to risk everything. It's not my company. And basically 
if I do a good job, which, you know, debatably one out of 10 people do a good job and having, you know, a nonprofit actually work, most of them fail. And, uh, and it's, and then basically if I'm doing my job, it's to put myself out of a job. Right. And, uh, yep, that's it. All right. Sign me up, you know, in the middle of Enron was collapsing, like the year, the month we incorporated the whole financial market went down the tank. Um, great place and time to start a nonprofit. And it, it's funny too, cause it's slowly happening. Right. Like, so we have a, a killer, we have a small team, but they're killers. Like I literally, yeah. if I left tomorrow, which I wouldn't and started a, a for-profit company, I would take them all with me. They're just insanely passionate and hardworking and intelligent. And it's like, I laugh sometimes like, like literally my job is just not to screw it up and try not to talk too much anymore. And it's hard because like at the beginning, it was just pushing them out and every day and every day, but you know, consistently every year that's hopefully doing the right thing. Most of the time, you know, our flywheel that is starting to turn a little bit harder and a little bit harder. And I hope that day is not in the near future, but I know one day I'm going to walk away and I, and that would be, the coolest thing is just to be able to have a go and be able yeah. to sustain itself, which a lot of people can't do and won't do. What, um, so when you, you know, kind of like took this risk and started this company and stuff like what made it worth it? I mean, that is such a risky thing and knowing how many people fail at doing like at your life in the time at the time, like what made it worth it to just kind of like let everything else go and just go for it. You know, it's being, so, for me, like I was saying, I, I was, I've always been a, a passionate person. It's just the way I am a little bit bipolar, depressed. I don't know what it is. My DNA, when I was born, I was born the way that I am. And, um, I always, you know, like playing sports, I always just felt most alive. Like I just, it would draw me in. I'd be passionate, competitive. I'd make me work hard. And then when you do that, right, you get, you reap, the rewards of the after like feeling good having that pride sense of self-worth and by not having that for a lot of years and having my untreated alcoholism take a hold and really wreak havoc in my life made me feel miserable um so to connect the dots of and, and then even my professional career like my track record was didn't matter what i did i don't know how many careers i had five or six and i'd be really into it for like a year or two and then I wouldn't care anymore. Mm -hmm. There's just no purpose behind it. I didn't care. It was all about me. How do I work the least and make the most money? Mm -hmm. And it was just always a dead end. And then when I, you know, the really looking back, you know, not being, you know, having this alcoholism take me to a point of despair. Like looking back now, it was such a blessing because had i not gone down that road i may not have been so desperate to make changes so like i, I call it the gift of desperation so yeah someone wise once told me that i'm like what are you talking about i don't know what you're talking about like when you're in the depths of it it sucks like you right. don't see any gift there but if you can use that to you know fight your way out of it and make a stand and uh you know and actually put some work forward to you know making your life better it's amazing what can happen so to me doing something i was passionate about and then matching that up with my career was like mind-blowing to me right so and then the other thing is i've always been kind of entrepreneurial my father 
I grew up in Laurel, Maryland. My dad, you know, had two gas stations when he was 18 years old in Baltimore City. He had a little uh, auto repair shop. He moved out to this little town, Laurel, Maryland, back in the day. And um, he was just a very hardworking, ran a small business. So I think just working there growing up and, you know, first one to go to college, my family worked his tail off and, and just knowing that it was possible. Right. And, you know, I worked for some big organization that just wasn't work for a big corporation was never in my genetic makeup. I just, I would do it for a little bit. And I just hated it to be quite yeah. frank with you. It's okay. Yeah. It just wasn't for me. Right. So it's funny. I real when I was in junior high, I, I I think the name of it was the camel strongback test. I'm sure I butchered that name wrong, but it was a test that everyone took and it would, you know, it basically said, you're going to be a doctor. You're going to be a lawyer. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you like to work outside? Do you need right. to make a ton of money? Uh, do you like to be physical? So I'm not making this up. My number one answer was operator of heavy machinery. Oh, right. So my like first job out of college, I worked for pet. I drove a Pepsi truck and a not nice, um, section of the city. It was rough. It was hard work. And, but I made really good money. I was making more money than all my friends. And then so I was like, and I love that piece of, then I started getting promoted into a managerial roles and I hated it. It became, and, uh, what the heck, what did, what questions did you answer in what way that made that? I, you know, your, I, like, I think what did I just say? I think it was like, would you rather be outside or yeah. sitting at a desk? Okay. Do you yeah. want to do something physical or not mm -hmm. physical? And to me, a hard day's work always made me feel better. And I think it's one of my, you know, if the, you told me to go build a fence one day, like I, if I lived and was a farmer, I wouldn't think I'd be a very uh, rewarding life for me. I just, I like, it. it makes me feel better from whatever's going on in my brain. Yeah. Hard labor at the end of the day. And I think that's one of the things that draws me to running. It's hard, right? right? Yeah, it, yeah. yeah, It's my medicine. I'm done. I feel good about myself. Bring the world's problems on. I can deal with it. That's like, I, makes you feel a sense of accomplishment, that kind of, doing that kind of work and Amen. finishing that kind of work. Amen. And, yeah. and then it was, I think to answer your specific question that I went sideways a long time, it, there was a little bit of method to the madness. Like I saw a need um, that wasn't being met. I knew it was worth it. Like it, it, the, to improve someone's life, I don't care what you're doing. Like that's, we don't need more donut stands in the world or, you know, sugar water and that's okay. Whatever people want to drink it, they drink it. But for me, I knew it was about improving lives, including my own first and foremost. Um, but seeing the opportunity there from a business standpoint of no one's doing this and then seeing like the challenge athletes foundation, which I started harassing them and calling them, asking why they're not starting a chapter in Maryland. And it was a little bit different. And, it's really seeing a need and seeing nobody doing that. It was, I was like, someone's got to be doing this crazy. In the last 15 years, there's like an ASA on every at least major city right now. It's really the athlete, assisted athlete, or the other word for what we do is duo racing has mm -hmm. exploded around the world, really. And we are just, you know, on the forefront of that. But is, was there a point like when you were like that you thought, like, what if this doesn't work? I, I like I was saying, thank God for yeah. the gift of desperation. I didn't care. You, like I was, you had nothing. It was just, I had nothing. You had nowhere to, to go. You had nowhere. Yeah. I, you know, 
I, 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 in my, cause you know, now I'm, go, I'm going through a separation. I had two beautiful daughters. I don't have a paycheck. Like I, and someone told me like, if you start this, this gentleman, real smart guy said, you can't expect to get a paycheck for two years. And I was like, I don't care when all the red tape was done with, you know, the, I was also, uh, I was a partner in a very small business at the time and it was all said done as a, a just about two years worth of paying the bills, getting rid of all my debt. And I read something somewhere. We, are you willing to sleep on the floor for what you're doing? Mm. And I was willing to sleep on the floor. Like, wow. and like, that's like, and it was so exciting for me. It's scary, but just like when you're living passionately like that and I would see other people doing it, not many, but there's people out there. And of course I got into reading some great books and it's like, that's the kind of life I want to live. Like, mm -hmm. And you know, it's hard. We live in a culture that's just continuously bombarding us with lies about, you know, the money you need to make. And um, it, for me personally, it was, um, I felt very trapped. I felt yeah. like I was living in a coffin to be quite honest with you. And I was willing to sleep on the floor to do what we were doing. Cause I knew how life giving it would be for me. And then I was like, I don't care, whatever I, I'm going to run out of money. And if, if I'm not doing it by that time, then I'll go get that job. I would have got before I even tried it. So. When did you realize that it was starting to go somewhere and like, take, like how long did it take for it to really be like, all right, this is working out. You know, it, it's funny. It's about two years. Like, right. Like, <laughs> and, and well, it, I shouldn't, so the first year, right. So what we were doing was great. Right. So I didn't have to get sold on that. We started racing with mm. some athletes from the bear school. And then I met a family at Maryland school for the blind. Then I met my good friends, Ben and Chris Mortensen who adopted four special needs children. One of which was Shane living with a terminal illness. We started racing with. So, and then we had people like you coming forth and like starting to, so it was really rough, but the, you know, the ship was sailing. It was real clunky and, uh, bouncing around, but it was sailing. So then it was like, okay, well, we got to raise some money. So our first year we raised $14,000, like literally started with zero. I opened the bank account. And I think I put in a couple thousand. Um, and for the 14 grand, our first year, nine of it came from spinning a money wheel at mother's purple patio, downtown Baltimore and fed Hill before the Ravens games, bunch of crazy lunatics, you know, in the parking lot all day long. So we would make anywhere from a thousand to $2,000, depending on, you know, how big oh, the game brilliant. was. That's such a great idea. And then, uh, the, the next year we raised 50. 2000 the next year was 105,000 and it was mm. like 154 and it like literally every year it started going up and it's crazy nikki like if we've done anything on the organizations to be financially disciplined and it was really hard i mean it's still hard but we created a little nest egg and you know no one took a, a paycheck for a while like with wow. you know myself and then our other founding board members certainly they don't take a paycheck anyway but even our staff it was mostly volunteer driven like there's angels that came through here to get it going through a purpose and passion um but today like even in the pandemic like it was it was tough but we're here like we have an essay we've done what a lot of organizations don't do whether they're not profit or for profit and that's just to save some of what you bring in in 15 years we've never spent more than we've brought in and i'm very proud of that because it's been very very hard i mean i have a fleet of used trucks and 
like we clean our office and we do what we need to do. Uh, but um, so that's been a big blessing for us. We are, we we're right before the pandemic, we were um, projecting, we needed, I think it was 700, three quarters of a million dollars to, to do what we do to pay for everything. And uh, of course that got whacked in half, but we were able to uh, cut our expenses in half because we weren't training and racing. So, you know, right. we're not doing that. It's our, our, our biggest expense is payroll and um, which rightly show like literally I'm not making this up. I don't know if I could double that payroll, but the staff that works for us right now easily could walk tomorrow and make a lot more money than what they make right now. But well, we're itching up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, what is your, I guess, organization's biggest challenge right now? Oh, what is our biggest challenge? Is it getting volunteers, getting the resources that you need to serve, uh, you know, your athletes? You know, I think for us, it's just, um, it's execution. Like I was saying before, we know we're very, we have a very focused mission and it's, and, and, and with, you know, having the, finally the, the complete playbook. I know what to do and how to do it. So now it's just a matter of, as we're coming out of the pandemic, we're still not at, we're, we're like this last month has been awesome. Like people are ready and they're coming back. Our numbers are just ticking up every week. And uh, our biggest, by nature of what we do, we go to a race, we get seen. Like we have mm -hmm. ability to market organically that a lot of organizations don't do just by the nature of what we do. Um, so once we reclaim our existing communities which is important to us to do what we're already doing it's where do we bubble next like what, what's the next community like literally we have it now we finally have the blueprint and for me it's just resources it's it's paid staff and I, like literally this past year for the first time in 15 years i felt like wow this is we've opened two new areas with paid staff to manage it and mm -hmm. I've never had that opportunity before. Every one of our communities has come from volunteers. Someone going, hey, I live in Howard County. Why aren't you here? And I'm like, well, we need a volunteer coordinator. I'll do it. Okay, great. And, and the other thing I was saying before is to have like our community coordinators, they're volunteers. So when we were doing multi-sport. It was a sometimes a full-time job some weeks, right? So then yeah. we're like, this is crazy. Like some of these volunteers, they were like, did it for five years and they're leaving. Like life's taking turns. We're having babies and like, wow, we can't have anybody do that. So part of the reason, just stick to running. We really looked at that engagement to say, this isn't sustainable. We have to have people cycle through. So we have like a two-year engagement now. And some of them stay longer because they love it. But we've really tried to say, all right, it's on average about seven hours a week, not the whole year, just in peak racing season. Half of that is at a training and racing, right? Which everyone mm -hmm. loves to do. And then, you know, the other, and it's not every week. You know, like it might be an hour one week because you're, you know, we got the Annapolis 10 miler coming where we're trying to pair teams and stuff, but we've really tried to make that achievable, sustainable. And that's a long way of saying that that's to me was a huge obstacle to get out to expand the communities where we're in, right? Cause you can't mm -hmm. need a volunteer. That's just a part-time, not even a part-time job. It was like a 20 hours a week, the way that it used to be. So yeah, I would say the direct answer, which I didn't answer directly is <laughs> it's just paid staff. Really. It's to, yeah. um, and it's, it's tough because that's the least exciting thing to get 
people to donate or grants written for is is staffing but yeah we know what to do and it's just a matter for us to turn the volume up it's it's staff to do it we know what and but i told you and it's exciting we we have a position open right now and it, if like for the right person it would be literally we want you out running and racing in our communities and getting more people on board the if i didn't have to do my other duties <laughs> that's the job i would have wanted 15 years ago if there was an organization doing what we were doing so if you're out there interested please give us a call dude that sounds awesome i, I might call you <laughs> yeah uh, as that, we that, say the, the hours are long and there's crappy pay so <laughs> it's um, pay's gotten a lot better we're at about an hour if you're still running you are doing amazing i hope that you are almost finished um and i want to leave you with a few more facts about team hoyt before we close out our episode with dave um team hoyt was inducted to the iron man hall of fame in 2008 and on April 8th, 2013, a bronze statue in their honor was dedicated near the start of the Boston Marathon. Wow. Um, and it's crazy and incredible to think that this all started because uh, Rick just wanted to um, help others and to prove that life went on no matter of your disability. Uh, it's no wonder that Dave was inspired by Rick and Dick Hoyt, and um, we are inspired by Dave. So with that, I'm going to get back to our episode and my final words with Dave. Well, you know, I just hope you realize that what you're doing is not just for the athletes that you're serving. I mean, you're helping people. The wingmen are certainly gaining from it. And even as a runner who sees you guys in races, um, you're motivating people who are just running. I mean, I know what it's like to see you guys in a race and just be like, wow, if they can do that, like I can finish this race or whatever. So like what you're giving just is, has this ripple effect. And, um, so I really want to thank you for, for what you do and, uh, encourage people who are listening to get involved. Um, cause it is such an amazing and great organization and with that I, I mean can you tell it tell us like what where people should go like how should they how can they help it's all on our website easy asa.run r-u-n the coolest mm -hmm. website in the world um, everything's listed there we if you're a runner we need you if you don't think you're fast or strong enough you're probably wrong um, you do not have to be a runner to support our organization. We have board opportunities. Uh, we have event opportunities. You name it. Um, like any other nonprofit, there's a lot of administrative tasks uh, that we have volunteers all throughout the day. Like I said before, pre-pandemic, we were cycling through about 700 unique volunteer individuals a year if you put all of our activities together. So, I mean, I know I guess, a lot. Of, yeah. Go ahead. ASA.run. ASA.run, guys. Um, and this community is so amazing. We all want to inspire and help people. So if you, I, I mean, Dave said all you need is a heart and you need to, uh, you don't even need to be able to run. That sounds like they'll help you learn how to run. Um, yeah. But get involved, we, definitely help out. Yeah. We feel blessed to be a part of the community. You know, it's important to us that, you know, when we go to a race, we add to it, not take away from it. And like, we want 
we don't want to get in the way of our fellow participants and the running community is so beautiful. Like, you know, Nikki, to see what you've done in your personal career is amazing. Like yeah. it's crazy. Every time I see one of your times, I'm like, what? <laughs> but that's inspiring. Right. And we, and that's a beautiful thing about the running community. Like there's all walks of life. Right. Like there's so many, you know, the unifying, uh, task at hand is just finishing whatever race we sign up to and it it's just awesome because it like you just never know who you're touching right oh, like right. it could be the one person that's never been to a race that's struggling with some type of disorder or addiction or tragedy or it might be that spark like yeah. you just never know and i've had certainly some big sparks in my life but I, I get sparks from uh, different people in different times. And you just never know. We always have an opportunity to make an impact, whether it's positive or negative. And uh, that's the beautiful thing about the running community. Like they're just so full of not just the ASA community. We're a no, part of the greater running yeah. community. And uh, it, it's just great. And they even form relationships with other organizations that we always see at races. It's beautiful. Well said. Our yeah, world sure. needs more of it. It yeah. really does. I think Absolutely. when someone says, I I usually um, I cry when I say this, but uh, when the greatest uh, email I ever got after a race, usually we do a race, you get some emails coming in and sometimes it's just random strangers. And the one that I've had more than one time was, hey, I, I witnessed your teams preparing to race this weekend. And I just want you to know it was beautiful reminder that there's still beautiful people in the world and there truly is like every day there's beautiful people there's beautiful things happening our media has a horrible way of barraging us with the negative but when i walk out my door there's just a constant reminder that there is a lot more good than bad and that we certainly want to be a part and or feel blessed to be a part of that Oh my God, a hundred percent. I mean, you are an example of the good that's in this world. And I want to thank you for sharing that because it's, uh, we all need to see it and realize it and know that, you know, in, in general, I, people are good Amen. I think, and they want to be good. Well, thank you so much. I am, I cannot wait to like get this out, um, and share this episode with the listeners and, um, get, get you guys, uh, you know, some some more volunteers, some more people who are passionate about what you do. Thank you, Nikki. We've been cleared for landing. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Maybe Running Will Help podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share the show if you enjoyed this content. Oh, and tag us on Instagram and Facebook so we can thank you for helping us to grow and reach more people, to provide hope to others through our community. Together, we can show others that running and our community will help.